No, fucking people. Fucking people out there, Roderick. You don't want to lick it on, don't buy it. You don't want to get addicted, don't abuse it. They're mad because we made it available and desirable. Hey, newsflash, it's our only fucking job. These people, they want an entire meal for $5 in five minutes, and then they complain it's made of shit and plastic. <laughs> McDonald's that serve nothing but kale salad all day and all night long. That's what people fucking ate. It's available, no one buys it. I will get around to funding AIDS research and diabetes and heart disease just as soon as we figure out how to keep our geriatric dicks harder for a few more minutes. What's the market share on wimpy dicks, Roderick? 60-70% of the healthcare industry. The Pentagon spent $83 million on Viagra last year. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court, the fucking Supreme Court, does its part, tears the autonomy, rips the liberty away from women, shreds not just their choice, but their future, their potential. We turn men into cum fountains and women into factories, cranking out what? An impoverished workforce there for the labor and to spend what little they make consuming. Mm. And what do we teach them to want? Houses they can't afford, cars that poison the air, single-serve plastics, clothes made by starving children in third-world countries, and they want it so bad that they're begging for it, they're screaming for it, they're insisting upon it, and we're the problem. These fucking monsters, these fucking consumers, these fucking mouths... They point at you and me like we're the problem. They fucking invented us. They beg for us, they're begging for us still. So I say, we stand tall and proud, brother. Bills come due. Let's not hide here in the basement like you've got something to be ashamed of. No, not us. You and me against the world. Don't care if it's death herself. She wants Madeline fucking usher. She's gonna have to look me straight in the eyes. From the most recent Mike Flanagan creation, The Fall of the House of Usher, the scene has Madeline and Roderick Usher, the sibling pharma tyrants, going on a tirade about society before they pay their overdue check to the devil. Although she is more like the Persian Satana Jason Georgiani speaks about. As Radiohead wrote in Karma Police... This is what you get. You can't play God without being acquainted with the devil. But Madeline Usher is not wrong. We do give power to the Argons and their Karens and Catamites in the establishment. Nobody holds a gun or Viagra hard penis to our heads when we go for the fentanyl or the OnlyFans or the two-party system or the bad diet or the doom-scrolling or the Netflix binge-watching or whatever. Nobody told us to cram a handful of blue pills up our rectums of reality. But hey, why do shadow work when we can enjoy the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave? Why take the inner journey when we can fly to Cancun and take pictures of our food for Insta? Why stand for wisdom when we can stand for the next thing we're told is the next big thing? Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes. 
Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Yes, we are trapped. But in this cosmic Shawshank, we are often fooled to double as the prison guards. As Dostoevsky wrote, The best way to keep a prisoner from escaping is to make sure he never knows he's in a prison. But as Philip K. Dick wrote in The Divine Invasion, What a tragic world this is. Those down here are prisoners. And the ultimate tragedy is that they don't know it. They think they are free because they've never been free and do not understand what it means. This is a prison and few men have guessed. But I know that is why I am here. To burn the walls, to tear down the metal gates, to break each chain. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. So it's our fault too, and our responsibility. But you of the broken places know that already, you high priests and priestesses of Hermes the god of thieves and Sophia the goddess of smugglers. You know your role and are out of the game of Saturn, have decided against a lead role in a cage and would rather go for a walk-on part in the war, as Pink Floyd sang in Wish You Were Here. You've put down the Big Mac and grabbed the Philosopher's Stone, and you're finally ready not to be the change you want to see in the world, as Gandhi said, but the strange you want to see in the world. To be a living glitch in the Matrix, spraying graffiti on Plato's cave's walls, and shattering those mind-forged manacles William Blake spoke about. Spastomy! This is madness! Rush! Rush! A.M. Um, Radio. An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon? Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. So how do we get out of this prison, this digital hellscape and bad software simulation? Well... I can assure you the gnosis and technosis of our astral guest will come a long way, a massive red pill suppository. It's an honor to have David Sweeney back at the virtual Alexandria. 
He will be discussing, yes, getting out of the digital hellscapes and bad software simulation. From Philip K. Dick to Grant Morrison, from Baudrillard to the recent Apple show Silo, from postmodernism to anarchism, get ready finally to awaken to your destined potential. It's become appallingly clear that our technology has surpassed our humanity. And you know, David, we'll discuss so much Gnosticism in modern times, as well as a lot of cool conspiracy stuffy stuff. I turned myself into a pickle and 9-11 was an inside job? Was it? Who cares, Morty? Global acts of terrorism happen every day. Uh, here's something that's never happened before. I'm a pickle! You'll end up understanding this passage from Philip K. Dick, I assure you. It goes... My big question remains, how faked is our own phenomenal world? At one end, the answer could be, it is a partially viewed reality. At the other end, it is a total hypnotic delusion. But that black iron prison, that is real. I used to be in that prison. What do you seem to understand? I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me! Not anymore, we of the broken places. For wokesters or NPCs that might be listening, let me share a story I heard from one of my favorite esotericists, Benabel Wen, on her YouTube channel. She talked about her days practicing Buddhism. One time, Benabel told her master that she thought Siddhartha wasn't that great of an example. After all, he abandoned his family to go to some metaphysical man cave. His temptations of Mara were mostly about hot chicks, so he was basically a projecting incel. He took his time in all things and wasn't mature in many cases before reaching enlightenment. You have to joyfully participate in the suffering of the world. Benabel's master agreed that Siddhartha wasn't a good role model that he was deficient. Then, he told Benabel that since she was ahead of Siddhartha in awareness and integrity, it would be a lot easier for her to reach enlightenment. And good luck with that. Shut up! So I say the same to you, wokesters and NPCs. If you think, for example, that the Founding Fathers were lacking in character and morality, then it shouldn't be a problem for you to defeat any mighty empire and start your own country. Shouldn't take you long. And this new country of yours will be much better than the USA or any Western country. Good luck with that. I'm sure you'll also do better than Jesus and not get caught or lose your temper. You'll do much better than Crowley, Bowie, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, or Mary Magdalene. You've got this, and good luck with that. Shut up! Ah, this is what you get. This is what you get. And a dishonest man you can always trust to be dishonest. Honestly, it's the honest ones you want to watch out for. Because you can never predict they're going to do something incredibly stupid. Ah, you just don't get it, do you? We liked historical figures or impactful celebrities, not because we knew them, but because they helped us know ourselves. This is what you get. 
We are all in the gutter, as Oscar Wilde said, but some of us are looking at stars. In our imperfections and sins, whether we're eating Big Macs or have the Philosopher's Stone, we can help each other escape this black iron prison. That is the mission of Aeon Bai. That is what your fallen host, Miguel Connor, has always tried to do. Welcome to the desert of the real. This is what you get. On to the interview with David Sweeney. But first, how about some more gnosis from The Fall of the House of Usher? Life hands you lemons. Make lemonade. First, you roll out a multimedia campaign to convince people lemons are incredibly scarce, which only works if you stockpile lemons, control the supply, then a, a media blitz. Lemons are the only way to say I love you, the must-have accessory for engagements or anniversaries. Roses are out, lemons are in, billboards that say she won't have sex with you unless you've got lemons. You cut the beers in on it. Limited edition lemon bracelets, yellow diamonds called lemon drops. You get Apple to call their new operating system OS Lemon. Little accent over the O. You charge 40% more for organic lemons, 50% more for conflict-free lemons. You pack the capital with lemon lobbyists. You get a Kardashian to suck a lemon wedge in a leaked sex tape. Timothy Chalamet wears lemon shoes at Cannes. Get a hashtag campaign. Something isn't cool or Tight or awesome? No, it's Lemon. Did you see that movie? Did you go to that concert? It was effin' Lemon. Billie Eilish, OMG, hashtag Lemon. You get Dr. Oz to recommend four lemons a day and a lemon suppository supplement to get rid of toxins because there is nothing scarier than toxins. Then you patent the seeds. You write a line of genetic code that makes lemons look just a little more like tits. And you get a gene patent for the tit lemon DNA sequence. You cross-pollinate. You get those seeds circulating in the wild. And then you sue the farmers for copyright infringement when that genetic code shows up on their land. Sit back, rake in the millions, and then when you're done, and you've sold your lempire for a few billion dollars then, and only then, you make some fucking lemonade. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined back again by David Sweeney. This time, he will be discussing, or we'll all be covering a sundry of amazing topics, but we will be focusing on his book, Scanned Clean, Rereading Michael Marshall Smith in the Digital Age. David, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's almost a a pleasure, a privilege. And it's always a lot of fun and very insightful. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine this wonderful California morning. Looking forward to hearing about this author and the uh, digital analysis of, of uh, literature. So, David, uh, yeah, it seems the world is just getting crazier since we last talked. What do you think? Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's just one thing after another, isn't it? It's just uh, <laughs> you know, I was um, I watched the the second season of White Lotus earlier oh, this great year. Show. Yeah, and you know, you've got um, 
the the young woman in it who Haley Lou Richardson I think played her, and she's saying, you know, all I do is just sit and doom scroll all day, <laughs> and I found myself doing that. I really had to stop, you know, like just try to stay away from it. But at the same time, you're thinking, oh my God, I've got to know what's going on. So, yeah, it's it's um, unprecedented, I think. Oh, it is. It's uh, the collapse of Western man's psyche. And yeah, you're right, because uh, if I look outside at nature, everything's fine. Nobody cares. But uh, with the news and social media, but at the same time, uh, you are a scholar. We like to uh, try to be as much an anthropologist as possible. In other words, go in and neutrally see things. But yeah, it's... uh, it can be confounding. It can be very confounding and, and definitely depressing because oh, you yeah. people are suffering. Their psyches are under a lot of strain, and you wish uh, you wish they would feel better, right? Well, I was speaking to my my students yesterday on my um, moving image course, and uh, I was really surprised and kind of heartened to hear that so many of them have just withdrawn from social media. You know for that kind of doom scrolling idea that they just can't take it anymore. And they were telling me about how much they've really enjoyed kind of going outside. And, you know, Glasgow's such a beautiful city. It's the dear green place. And, you know, the, you know, a lot of them are saying that, um, that social media is sort of something that you kind of grow out of, you know, become, it's really essentially the teenage experience or centrally the teenage experience rather. But then as you mature, it's something you kind of step away from. So I was really glad to hear that because when social media is just intensifies things that are already unbearably un- intense, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely staying away from that. But even you know, just watching the mainstream media and, you know, there's so much going on over here. You know, there's so many different scandals related to, to media and to celebrity and so on. And um, there's that. And then there's obviously the geopolitical situation. But, you know, there's just constant, there are constant sort of sense that that this the the weight of all this information coming in is just not good for you, you know that it's we're not kind of built to be to be this aware. I think so. Yeah, yeah stepping back. A, good point. Good point. Yeah, because uh, on the one hand, yeah, you're like, well, social media is just atomizing our minds, but God forbid we go back to the times of legacy media when it's just one big propaganda machine. It's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's good that, you know, people are, you know, students and just people generally are critical of legacy and mainstream media that they, that they've learned how to read it, you know, that they don't just accept everything it says, you know? So, um, otherwise it, it just does become, as you say, propaganda, and so I'm, I'm kind of really heartened by that as well. That the students are not the the thing that I'm glad that as well that they've avoided is cynicism. You know, instead they're healthily skeptical because I think cynicism is the the soul killer. You know, that's when you know you die inside when you become cynical. Yeah, that's a very good point. You've got to keep uh, you got to keep your soul healthy. And yeah, I think uh, do you, for example try to teach your students about things like uh, synchromysticism or Jungian or Jungian view of symbols and all that uh, sort of teach them like, you know, this is still in a way it's a construct and the machine is alive. There's always a rhythm and a cadence and a bunch of symbols and two groups that are pitted against each other. You know, there's a narrative that if you look at it, you go like, Hey, this is a story, and maybe I can b- not belong to the story, or just write another story. 
It's it's less that I teach them that um, because you know I work at an art school, so we're there is the kind of contextual studies department, um, and the majority of the students' time is, is spent in the studio. But when they they come to us in their final year, they have an, an open subject choice. They can write an essay or a dissertation about anything. And you do find students um, have got an interest in things like symbolic analysis, comparative mythology. Um, they become very interested in um, media theory. And I see synchro mysticism as a kind of extension of media theory. Right. So I did. I had a great student a few years ago who, independent of me, had discovered um, synchro mysticism, um, a fine art student, and had become really immersed in it and was making work kind of influenced by it. You know the um, I'm, no, I'm missing the person's name. Jake was it Jake Ketz who was the the Canadian synchromistic? I'm probably mis- sure. mispronouncing yeah, okay. his name. Um, yeah, it was my was very influenced by him, and you know, made really interesting kind of media collages um, inspired by particularly the one that um, Jake. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the surname uh, that Jake made about uh, the actress Robin Tunney. Uh, who, who he saw as a kind of high priestess of the apocalypse. You know, she was in a, a movie called something like uh, K2, yeah, The Mountain K2, right. which he then inverted to be 2K as in Y2K, and then looked at all the other movies that she was in. She was sitting in some like other apocalypse movie, and she was in uh, Empire Records, where she had a kind of symbolic death and rebirth and things. It was totally fascinating. So, yeah, the students, they kind of find that on their own and then we, um, you know, kind of cultivate their interest in it rather than it being sort of core to the curriculum. But I do have a lot, lot of students that are interested in um, in Jungian uh, theories and analysis. I, actually, germane to what we're going to speak about today, um, well, not um, Michael Marshall-Smith himself, but Jean Baudrillard, there's a, a real resurgence of interest in Baudrillard's philosophy, particularly his ideas about simulation, uh, you know, and, and media theory, you know, because, um, you know, he famously said that the Gulf War didn't happen. And he, you know, then he infamously said that 9-11 didn't happen. Um, <laughs> so, and what he meant was that, you I mean, it was deliberately provocative, but it was there to kind of say, well, how do you know what happened? Um, you only know, as you said, the, the kind of narrative that you you were given. So I think a, a lot of students are very interested in that again. And I think that is a result of media saturation, you know. Um, I've, I've got a lot of students talking to me in, in tutorials about authenticity, you know, kind of longing for the real, um, which is, you know, as Baudrillard said, you can forget the real, it's gone, <laughs> but, um, you know, <laughs> maybe we can get it back, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it is incredible. Uh, like you said, all this information is, uh, it's interactive, but yeah, reality is, uh, completely collapsed, especially when you look at people, how they will look at an issue or an event and they will see completely different things. And if you don't still yourself, uh, you might get swept away. But if you're in your center, you're like, okay, I don't know if I, the event no longer matters. It's almost like, the reaction of all these sides and the narratives they take and the symbols mm. they they circle their wagons around it's yeah like you said for uh Baudrillard or Philip K Dick or Carl Jung or even Marshall McLuhan I'd say watch mm. these guys 
think about projection, reality, and then, yeah, be, uh, as I tell people, stay stoic, my friend, and just be an anthropologist. <laughs> just walk yes. through the jungle and take notes and find out more about yourself than anything, what your role might be in this world. Everybody has a role and a mission and can be helpful. What I'm really glad to see kind of diminishing in terms of like student interest is this idea of um, post-truth, you know, that was really prevalent after Trump got yeah. elected, you know, and um, but also kind of corresponding with that was um, this idea that you create your own reality. And I just, I've never been comfortable with that idea, you know, that that there is a reality that we all share and we have to accept that there's a reality we all share. So, there's a great American academic, you know, a living academic um, called Jodie Dean. And she wrote a really influential essay about how, you know, the internet has been presented to as a kind of, as a common sphere, a kind of public sphere, but it's highly regulated. And that, you know, this was back in like 2006 that Jodie wrote that essay. And then she said, you know, um, one of the most pernicious ideas associated with the internet is that it's full of multiple realities. There is only one reality and it is a site of conflict. And it's true, you know. So, you know, it's, it seems to me like a kind of consumer mentality to think that you just pick and choose reality or you just pick and choose truth. And we have to kind of, I think, realize that we do share a planet and we do share th these events happen. And then there is a narrative that surrounds the, the event that has happened. And we have to understand how those narratives are generated. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite a battle. And even then, we can go into the Jungian part or where mm -hmm. his famous dictum, if you don't make the conscious conscious, it will appear as fate. It appears yeah. we have no free will. In fact, there are so many studies I've been researching where, you know, people are, they put things on their mind, he, 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 J's or whatever I'm, whatever I'm calling. And they find out that decisions are made before somebody's yeah. conscious. And so many other studies where, we make decisions way before we think we make them because of all the programming, our past, our complexes, all that. So there's that too, right, David? There's what I tell people. Yeah, you got to untangle this sort of a weird reality, matrix reality, but you also have to understand your inner matrix, which is kind of the same. It's a a big domain of layers of uh, false information or coded information. Yeah, I mean, another... Um contemporary American academic, um, Stephen Shaviro, um, who wrote a book called Doom Patrols in the 90s, which was inspired by Grant Morrison's run on the comic Doom Patrol. Um, Stephen Shaviro writes a lot about that idea that, you know, the same kind of thing you're talking about, that research into decision-making, that decisions are made before the kind of conscious recognition that the decision is being made. And, um, you know, and actually Michael Marshall Smith is writing about that in some of his work. You know, he talks about the kind of reptilian back brain makes, you know, a decision which you then articulate, you know. Um, and that, that's something that I think the students are interested in as well. You know, the uh, there's a kind of return of a lot of the kind of theory that was floating about in the 90s and, and early 2000s, which uh, is when I was sort of cutting my teeth and all this stuff. And there's definitely a return of interest in that. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting theory going on at the moment as well about, um, you know, ideas of of um, the physicality of of the internet. You know, the the server farms that power the internet. You know how they're affecting the environment. You know these things are are quite often put into um, 
into water, you know, in coastal areas. And they, because they're so hot, they begin to have an effect on, on those environments. Um, you know, and then you think about, you know, the physicality of the internet in terms of people's bodies. You know, they, um, I'm sure you've seen those things in like New Scientist where they kind of try and predict yeah. or project oh, what humans are going to look like. <laughs> yeah, you know, and quite often you look like a grey alien, you know, like with <laughs> big eyes and long fingers, you know, because. Yeah. Uh, so I think people have become very conscious of that, you know, that, um, that you know, that is related to things like doom scrolling as well. I mean, doom scrolling has that mental effect, but, you know, depression is always a very physical illness as well. So um, so I, I think that's good. I mean, there's the phrase post-internet, it's been bandied around quite a lot on the internet. So you kind of think, how post-internet can it actually be? But I, I think there is a sort of sense that, the internet is it has lost its novelty in a lot of ways, and in that sense, people are now looking for something not you know against the internet, but something other or something you know that you can do rather than spending all your time online. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier on about the kind of authentic experience that people seem to be craving. And part of that, I think, too, relates to the lockdown during the pandemic. You know, there is the, the kind of cliche that people just spent their whole lives online, but that's not necessarily true, you know, because people had more time to go and wander around the streets, you know, the streets were empty, go and wander around parks and things like that, social distance though you might have been. And you also had people doing things that they didn't have time to do before, like, you know, gardening, even if it was just gardening, you know, in a, a, a balcony, if you lived in like a flat or an apartment, you know. Um, growing your own food, um, learning how to bake, big thing in Britain, um, all this sort of stuff. And I've also got a lot of students tell me that they've got really into traditional crafts recently, you know, like like knitting. Knitting's a big one at the moment, very fashionable. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I, the kind of satisfaction that comes from making something, you know, the kind of tactility of the process and then you know, the fact that you've actually done something productive rather than doom school. Yeah, that's 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 good news indeed. And yes, I I sometimes miss uh late spring, early summer of twenty twenty because it was nice. I where I could drive, there was no traffic, go to the store, there was nobody there. Mm. I could walk parks and dog parks and let my dogs out and just walk and I don't there was nothing there. Nobody around. It was a it was wonderful to move and walk around and uh, just sort of take life. Yeah, and gas was really cheap too. I remember <laughs> right. gas prices just collapsing. <laughs> ah, right. I'm going to drive around. There's no traffic. There's no people. I'm just going to drive in and listen to to the Beatles or something. It was awesome. And Vance, well, let's bring you in. What do you think about what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, in digital hell, or what's your what, <laughs> what says thou? Well. It goes back to free will. As far as doom scrolling goes, I've noticed that. I'm a Facebook user, but the um, I tend to try to filter out all the garbage things, although, you know, some of it leaks in. Uh, but, you know, it, it, which comes back to free will. And what about the concept of we program ourselves and then later on we may we may react before our consciousness decides to think about it but that reaction is actually a function not entirely but uh, a, a lot of how we've programmed ourselves before our attitudes mm. so now maybe 
you could argue that, well, our attitudes were pre-programmed, but in that case, then free will, of course, collapses and then we don't have a choice but to doom scroll, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty entangling sometimes. I, yeah. I and no, I, 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 for one, I, for one, you know, I, I know the concept of walking nature, gardening, growing your own food, going back to nature, traditional crafts and so forth, music. <clears throat> oh, there you go. I just, no, okay. There's, here, here's a knee jerk reaction. That's not my free will. I'm a musician. And in my younger days, I used to play in bands and play out at weddings and parties and so forth. And I used to love it. But as time went on, the media, namely disc jockeys and CDs and, you know, um, all, all the all the music that's available on the Internet has pushed live music out so that the number of live bands that are in demand is like dwindling almost to nothing. Oh, wow. And... And so my opportunities for playing with other people out in public have grown, uh, you know, smaller year after year. So there, there, so there's an argument for saying, you know, that our, our, our technology is robbing us of our human interaction with each other. That, that's really interesting because there seem to be, and seems to certainly in, in Britain, a kind of resurgence in, in live music. Um, you know, the, not just kind of big mega concerts like Taylor Swift or something like this, but, you know, small club bands playing. Um, there's a very healthy music scene in Glasgow and always has been, you know. Um, cool. So, I, yeah, I think, you know, there's... But one of the things that I've been talking about with my Moving Image students recently is, um, you know, it's not new, but it's something that, you know, I think is, is significant is, you know, people going to a gig, you know, a performance by a band or a comedian and filming it so that they're not really in the moment. You know, they're standing right, there with yeah. their phone, you know, that kind of thing. And then archiving it. Um, you, you had the kind of phenomenon, like when Chris Rock played in Glasgow, I think it was part of this tour they, they did. One of the conditions for the audience was that they had to surrender their phones, which you know, were, <laughs> locked, were locked in, you know, kind of little yellow bag with a name on it but they weren't allowed to have their phone for the duration of the performance i think Kanye west did it as well um and there's this weird phenomenon that there's been recently like this year which is sort of extension of that of people throwing phones at performance <laughs> really? you know? yeah there was like some pop star hit in the face with a phone oh dear um and actually, that is now kind of mutated into a sort of general trend of just throwing things at performers, mm. uh, and not in a kind of appreciative way, you know, sort of like you know bunches of flowers, but you know, coins and other kind of heavy, sharp objects. So, I, you know, the, the the live experience of music is something that I really loved and treasured when I was younger. But I can't remember the last time that I went to see a band. I think I've just, yeah, I've just kind of aged out of it i think <laughs> how about at weddings and uh, weddings and so forth um you know like here in the states my impression is i haven't gone to a lot lately but if you have a wedding it's always got to be a dj it's got to be a dj and djs are putting themselves forward as if they're musicians oh yes because i know how to mix this song and that song and maybe i'm sounding like an old man but to me you know that used to be a joke what what instrument do you play the record player right <laughs> that now it's a reality but in great britain um is it the same over there are people when they have weddings or are you know having djs instead of bands um well 
I think the the kind of usual thing is to have a DJ, and if you can afford one, to have you know a name DJ rather than a kind of journeyman DJ who just plays that circuit. My father was a, a musician who uh, played regularly on the the kind of wedding circuit. A very accomplished, very sort of technically gifted musician, but didn't play any kind of original material or ever write any original material. Right. And I think there is still an interest in having that. But yeah, I think the default tends to be more like having a DJ there. And, you know, um, full disclosure, in the 90s and early 2000s, I was a DJ, like a hip-hop mm. DJ, um, <laughs> you know, who scratched records and mixed them uh-huh. in that, you know. But uh, I'm also a trained musician, so, you know. Um, <laughs> and I did see it as a kind of extension. I didn't. I don't know if I ever thought about it quite as an instrument as much, because what was more important, I think, was about the the way that records were put together. I do think that there is a skill to that, if not an art. You know, I agree. Yeah, I do agree. Um, but what you also get a lot now is, I find this quite fascinating, is, you know, the DJs are don't use records anymore. It's all digital. Right. And you can get, you can get like a virtual record. So, you, you know, rather than carrying around, you're like I do too, which is why I've got such a bad back. But you know, carrying around boxes of vinyl, you'll see like DJs, even kind of you know hip hop turntablists, will turn up for gigs with these most two like virtual records. Well, they're they're actual physical artifacts, um, and you put them onto a kind of digital turntable, and you can manipulate them. You know, they look like twelve inch records, and you manipulate them in the way that you would a vinyl record, so you can scratch and cut and all that kind of thing. But what you're scratching and cutting is an MP3, you know, is a, a digital track. So that's yeah. the way that's the way that the, that technology has developed. That's funny. Um, yeah, but sometimes DJs do just bring MP3s along and plug them into a laptop, and that's it. Which I, I personally find a bit underwhelming. You know? I like to see somebody <laughs> carrying a box of records. Maybe because- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> the old days. The old. And what about? This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Here in the United States, when there's a big brawl, there's a term. It's called an Irish wedding. Are the Scots <laughs> the same? Is it just why have a DJ? Everybody's going to start hitting each other after a while. Um, Are you more civilized? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm an Irish citizen, so um, oh, I can, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Irish weddings. I think that I think that's that's the old Irish wedding. Right. Scotch. <laughs> I mean. Scottish weddings, the few that I, I haven't been to that many Scottish weddings, but I, I do remember what the, the kind of highlight of a Scottish wedding was probably just before the brawl that you talk about was when, <laughs> you know, a kind of um, drunken patriarch or, you know, somebody <laughs> like that would go up and sing something really sentimental, you know, to his wife. And it would be like, and a, a kind of unintentionally, they would sound like Captain Beefheart or something like that, you know. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> so that was what I always liked about weddings when people would uh, get um, all kind of you know sort of misty eyed as somebody would be singing maybe an old Irish folk song or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's the same, David. Right? The 
humans go to a wedding, but it's you got the same team. You've got uh, underlying resentments, trauma, <laughs> complexes, you know, ancestral issues, uh, family friction, and before you know, you let the inhibition out, and it all comes out. Not that different than social media. Same, uh, same <laughs> as it ever was. And I think for free will, it's uh, I go back to Neo in the Matrix when the Oracle tells him. Uh, it's not about making the choice. It's about understanding why you make the choice. Don't worry about the free will. Worry about the self-reflection. So, Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I wonder if you can sort of extend the kind of musical analogy a little bit, you know, sure. like, um, you know, thinking about improvisation within a structure. You know, you have, like, say somebody like John Coltrane, you know, and his, his groups would play maybe, like, you know, a kind of, classic even something like green sleeves but improvise within the structure miles davis you know taking like a pop song or again a romantic ballad and improvising within that and maybe that's what we all do you know within socially uh, constructed structures or you know whatever the programming as you were saying uh, vance you know we improvise within that and that's the kind of sense of agency that we all have um but then there's sometimes where you, you think, you know, am I really making a choice? I was trying to explain to, to students recently the difference between the concept of affect and emotion. Um, and, you know, the, the best way, and this probably is what you would expect from an Irish Scots person. Um, I said, well, think about affect as a, ha- as a hangover, right? You know, when you, you've got a hangover, and it's been a long time since I've had a hangover. Um, <laughs> you know, you try and understand it. Your your body is poisoned and polluted, and it's, it hates you for that while, and it makes you very emotional. And your emotional response to your hangover is a way to kind of try and make sense of it. So affect, I think, is like you know your general sense of being in the world. You know, um, your understanding, your awareness of the kind of social pressures and tensions that there are. And sometimes your emotional response, which is very kind of subjective and personalized, is, um, I think, a way to try and understand affect. I don't think I explained that very well there or to the students, but yeah, that's something that I find myself thinking. Sounds about. like the difference between an ache and a pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 much better, Vance. Yeah, I think I'll steal that from. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Copyright the mundo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, why don't we talk about uh, your book? Uh, uh, Vance and I are not that familiar with Michael Marshall Smith. So tell us about his work and why it's important uh, as we try to decipher these digital hellscapes of today. Yeah, well, the... the, uh, I I can lead into this, if it's okay, Miguel, by just talking a bit about Silo. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, We can start with Silo. I would love to lead in with Silo, sure. Okay, well, you know, I'd, I'd emailed you um, after I'd I'd watched the first season of of Silo, and I was really taken with it. You know, for for listeners that might not know, Silo is a um, a TV series on Apple TV. It's just one season so far. I think the second season's been greenlit, and it's based on a series of, um, sort of dystopian science fiction books by a writer called Hugh Howie, who um, initially self published them through. Um, Amazon's Kindle apparatus, you know, um, but has subsequently licensed some of these made a fortune out of them. So kudos to him for being the kind of self-publishing oh, yeah. success he is. So I think this series of books is called Wool. And the significance of that is that 
the the world of Silo, um, it's post-apocalyptic Earth sometime in the far future, where the um, surface is uninhabitable. So human beings live in these huge silos that have been there for a long time, that are these kind of, uh, you know, kind of deep um, cities, I guess, that are all these layered cities that go deep, deep down into the earth. Um, and uh, if you, they've got all these kind of agreements that are there to kind of keep the, the social contract going. Um, and you can see on one floor, you can see the outside world through a kind of video screen. And if you suddenly decide or if you decide over a period of time that you want to go outside, that you don't want to live in the silo, even though you've been told that it's uninhabitable, you have to be allowed to go outside. So, you know, you put on this kind of like space to spacesuit type thing and you walk to the hangar door and you go through this kind of decompression. You get sprayed with some sort of agent, whatever it is, and you go outside and Usually what happens, you're given a piece of wool to take with you, a cloth. And when you're outside, you see what reality is. And most people, in fact, almost everyone who goes outside then turns around and starts to clean the sensors, the cameras for the the video screens, because they realize that the outside world is as bad as they've been told it is. Okay, and then they walk up a hill and then they die, right? You know, from <laughs> from radiation poisoning, apparently. Right. So they, but then there's a, so there's this recurring kind of heresy, you know, that that the the inhabitants of the silo are being lied to, and that the outside world isn't uninhabitable, or at least it isn't uninhabitable anymore. So why are they not allowed to go outside? And when I watch that, and I'm sure you're both thinking this as well, this is very like. Uh, Philip K. Dick's novel, The Penultimate Truth. Right, yeah. From, from 1964, um, I, in which this there has been a nuclear war. The surface of the Earth ha- has been made uninhabitable for a period, and human beings live underground in what in the novel are called ant tanks. So, you know, there's that kind of mass concentration of people who labour away in these underground dwelling places, but the reality is that the surface isn't is perfectly safe. It's regenerated itself. So there's an elite that lives on the surface in these vast domains, as they're called in the book, these you know, huge villas that people have got, huge estates. And they're these greedy elites, you know, who want to keep the, the surface for themselves, but they've got an underground proletariat who labor for them. Mm-hmm. So that was the first thing that I thought of when I watched Silo. Um, I was also reminded a bit of um, To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep when the people who do go outside walk up the hill and die. It's a bit like the Mercer box in Do Android's Dream of, of Electric Sheep. And people kind of watch them and, um, you know, watch them and experience a sort of catharsis and the kind of Greek sense of it, you know, you get very upset. But it also affirms the social uh, order. You know the belief that it's necessary for people to um, live underground, and the the kind of stratification of the silos, you know, um, comparable to a kind of social class system. You know the kind of thing that you would see in like Snowpiercer, if you've seen that. You know yeah, the different, yeah. yeah, the different kind of the classes of the the train, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, horizontal instead of vertical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the um, way, this and, sounds like a boy and his dog. You remember that old movie? Oh, oh yeah, wow. yeah. It's Don Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a blast from the past. Yeah. Um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, you've got the kind of heresy, and that 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 narrative runs through it. That there's there's inconsistencies in the story, and at one point there's a kind of glitch, and the the kind of video screen image of this blasted heath outside is replaced with an image of a perfectly you know kind of habitable meadow um i'm trying not to spoil it for the listeners because i I would encourage people to watch it you know it's it's very entertaining it's very well made um it stars rebecca ferguson who is a great actress oh she's brilliant and nice on the eye she's like the full package yeah, she can even, even sing. <laughs> oh yeah, and you know she's she's what Swedish, so she's got quite often in movies you know, she's got an American accent on. Right. But in the in Silo, you can hear a Swedish accent coming through, and she actually <laughs> sounds Irish, which makes it even more perfect. You know, so, um, so you, you you've got that kind of aspect of it. Is she um, something that, that we'd emailed about uh, Miguel about the the uh, emphasis in it on on she she becomes a a police officer, like the kind of chief of police, right? But before that, she's an engineer. And the narrative is a detective story. Right, yeah. You know, she investigates these deaths and also the, you know, what's going on outside and corruption amongst the kind of elites and so on. Exactly. Yeah, um, that was that was my complaint, but I, I was also, it was a surrendering complaint, as we've yeah. talked, uh, because, yes, there's so much of the story, it's her playing detective, but... I was like, I want to get more into the philosophy like mm. Snowpiercer does and other mo- Gnostic movies does b- do instead of... But then I was like resigned because as we've talked, there's something about... It's almost when you have a Gnostic story, you're going to have to inject either a Western or a noir detective, right? Like uh, 13th Floor, Dark City, Blade Runner, this sort of hard boil. I got to solve a crime. I don't trust the dame. I don't know who <laughs> I am. Is my boss going to betray me? You know, this very modern Gnostic uh, vibe and Silo does just that. It's got everything. Yeah, and you had that in the OA as well that I've spoken course, to on yeah. your show. But but the one thing that that reminded me of was um, there's a great um, it's called a postmodern detective novel, but I would say it's more kind of just an ex- existentialist detective novel um, called the New York Trilogy by Paul Auster that came out in the mid eighties. Paul Auster's a New York writer, and the structure of it um, is based on the Beckett trilogy. You know the three novellas by Beckett. So the idea is that the character, the narrator in the second novel is revealed to be the author of the first novella. Then the person in the third is revealed to be the author of the second one and therefore that means of the the um, author of the first one. And then, you know, the implication is, well, if Beckett is the author of all three, then who is the author of Beckett? You know, yeah. it's that kind of idea of the kind of recursive notion of you know who who made who is uh acdc once per you know um, <laughs> I think, um yeah mike flanagan does it with his new series the fall of the house of usher where everything is just part of an edgar Allan poe plot and right. you know you know what's going to happen but you wonder the characters are talking about edgar Allan poe and you're like don't you know you're in his story get out it's kind of <laughs> that kind of same vibe <laughs> well paul oster did that in uh this novel and 
you know, I used to teach comparative literature at the University of Glasgow before I moved to the, the art school to teach. Um, and we had we taught that that novel, the New York trilogy there, and we compared it to Oedipus Rex by Sophocles. Um, and you know, the sense that Sophocles goes and investigates this mystery, you know, and re- re- you know who who is the killer, and he is revealed to be the killer. You know, so he, you know, it's that kind of. Uh, you know, as you were like saying, Mickey the, Rourke and Angel Heart. Angel Heart, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Blade Runner, Deckard. You know, right. who is he really? That, that sort of thing. So I think the existential aspect of it worked quite well, and uh, of the, the existential existential aspect of um, the detective story worked well in the way. You know, where you've got the character Kareem Washington in the second season, and of course that ends with him having this literally awe-inspiring revelation that he's a fictional character. Um, You know, spoilers, but (laughs) that he's a fictional (laughs) character, right? And it's interesting to me that Brett Marlin and Zal Batmanglish made the OA, you know, their new thing that comes out next month is called A Murder at the End of the World. Yeah. And it's a sort of post-Knives Out type whodunit. But of course, they just use those kind of genre trappings for all their kind of philosophical and indeed Gnostic um, explorations. So I agree with you that, that I would like to have seen more of that in um, Silo, and hopefully it's going to lead into that. But even, you know, the, the kind of look and feel of it, all these journeys that people have to make between floors, because there's no elevators. And, you know, that's one of the plot points. Why aren't there elevators in this place, you know? <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, a heresy to to complain for the lack of elevators. You know, so it feels very kind of like a pilgrimage, you know, when people have to go down all these different levels and there's the porters who run about, you know, these who are kind of literally hermetic, you know, they're like Hermes, you know, the messenger. And there's all that kind of... So it felt um, very... Uh, not labyrinthian, I guess. Um, is it Pirandelli? Is that the artist I'm thinking of? And maybe a bit like Escher as well. And you, you could also think in the myth of Sisyphus. You know, you're constantly, you know, repeating the same things, going, you know, trap, rolling the stone, and all this kind of thing. But I found the Silo also to be very reminiscent of um, one of Michael Marshall Smith's novels. Um, his not his first novel, in fact, uh, Only Forward. So. That came out in 1994, and Michael Marshall Smith um, is a British uh, science fiction and horror and crime writer who um, I discovered in the 90s with his second novel, Spares. Um, And Spares was optioned by DreamWorks, but they made the film The Island instead, um, which is very similar to Spares. You know, the idea that you can grow clones for spare parts, that's why it's called spare. Um, or or um, the the movie uh, and the novel Never Let Me Go. No, yeah, that was uh, that was intense. Yeah, so that's that's very like spares as well. But in One of, one of Us is a really strange uh, novel. Uh, not One of Us, sorry, that's its third novel. Only Forward is a really strange novel in that... So... so uh, Michael was a, a a very early internet adopter, and I wouldn't say that his writing is cyberpunk at all. Um, but only forward comes close to being like cyberpunk. So the setting for that is this future city that's just called the city, which is broken up into neighborhoods, 
and those neighbourhoods are themed. So, you know, you've got a neighbourhood called Colour, which is for people who like colours. Uh, you've got a neighbourhood um, called the Cat District, which is run by cats and all this sort of thing. <laughs> um, and it seemed to me that you it was very like and kind of imagining of the internet, you know, that you the websites that you have correspond to your personal inclinations and tastes and dispositions. But one of the neighbourhoods that, and again, it's a detective story, so, that, you know, the character Hap, is employed to go and investigate things by the people who rule the city. So in this case, it's a missing person. One of the uh, neighbourhoods that he goes to that he has to break into, most of all the other neighbourhoods, you're allowed free passage. You might have to like, you know, get your papers checked at the border or something, but most places you can go as you wish, right? Apart from this one neighbourhood called Stable. And Stable is like the, the conceit behind penultimate truth and silo and well we don't actually know what the truth is in silo at the end of the the um first season we don't know if the outside world definitely is uninhabitable or not right um but in only forward uh stable is this recreation of a sort of um perfect idea of um like 1950s america and the people in, in Stable um, live in a kind of collective fiction, right? You know, they they, they all they they believe that the outside world is is uninhabitable apart from Stable, and in that uh, environment, it's like this kind of you know mid mid century, mid twentieth century, um, kind of very relaxed, um, conservative in a lot of ways, and. and neighborhoods where there are things like crime and all that but mostly it's just a very kind of pleasant way to live your life you know you just kind of got on with it but the people who run stable have told them that the outside world is not you know worth it's it's not safe to go into um so that is it's only part of the novel but i know that mike having interviewed him and and done various events with him and things i know that um he is uh influenced by Philip K. Dick, and he did win the Philip K. Dick Awards a few times for his writing. So um, in his third novel, um, which is um, sort of themed around uh, alien abductions, uh, you've got, the the third novel's called uh, One of Us. You've got um, the the, the kind of, again, sort of detective type, or at least investigative type uh, central character narrator um, who lives in near future um, LA and lives in a, a neighbourhood called Griffith Park, which uh, has been turned into very much sort of late capitalist environment, which people have, have protested about. So there's a kind of simulation of old Griffith Park, which is um, projected onto the walls around Griffith Park so that the people object to the new Griffith Park don't have to look at it. They look at a simulation of the old Griffith Park. And the influence that's there on uh, Michael is um, Jean Baudrillard, of whom he's a huge fan. And you can see the influence of of Baudrillard throughout uh, Michael Marshall Smith's work. And Baudrillard, of course, you know, was a big influence on The Matrix. Although he felt that there were... I mean, his book, uh, uh, Simulation Simulacra, is in The Matrix. It's taken off (laughs) the, the shelf by Neo at one point. 
Um, but he felt that the Bukowskis had completely misunderstood his ideas. You know, because he said that there is no separation anymore between the simulation and reality. The simulation is reality. Reality is a simulation. Um, and the first, you know, sort of examples that he gave for that. So he was a French uh, philosopher who was fascinated by America. And I, I mentioned Stephen Chaviro earlier on. Stephen Chaviro um, was very critical of of Baudrillard because he felt Baudrillard was in the tradition of these kind of gloomy European intellectuals <laughs> who go to America and go, nobody realizes that this is all fake. It's not real. You know, like Theodore Adorno had done, you know, in, in right. the 40s and 50s when he talked about the culture industry and how everything was, was unreal. Um, and Shavira uh, says, no, everybody in America knows that it's not you know, but that is their reality that's not real. So, you know, Baudrillard would talk a lot about Disneyland and how Disneyland was the kind of, was necessary to the American experience for people to kind of be able to live in such a kind of inauthentic, fake culture. And Shaviro's response is like, nobody in America is fooled by Disneyland. Everybody knows that it's, you know, it's a construct, it's a creation, all this sort of stuff. So, you know, Shaviro, when Baudrillard died, Shaviro wrote quite a respectful but critical obituary of him, and Michael Marshall Smith wrote a very respectful um, obituary of him too. But Baudrillard's ideas of, of um, you know, are, are very McLuhan-influenced, I think, but they're also very similar to the ideas of, um, of Guy Debord from The Situationists, who your recent guest was talking about um, on the episode um, about American Gnosis. If you remind me of his name, I just forgot. Yeah, uh, uh, Arthur versus Luce. Yeah. So his, uh, um, I thought that was a really fascinating episode um, where he was talking about, you know, the way that so many things are called Gnosis quite lazily. You know, some people, <laughs> and he mentioned the situationists, and he mentioned Marx. Um, I wouldn't describe either Marx or Guy Debord and the Situationists. So Guy Debord was one of the founding members of the Situationists and probably the best known, um, particularly for his book, The Society of the Spectacle, you know, which kind of deals with, uh, you know, understands capitalism as one big spectacle, not just in terms of things like, um, you know, advertising, moving images and all that kind of thing, but just the whole thing is a spectacle. Mm-hmm. What influenced... Um, Guy Debord there was Marx and Marx's particular idea of false consciousness. You know, for Marx, what capitalism was, was one, it was a sort of paradigm shift um, in the way that people experienced the world, but it was um, it was false, right? You know, their, their understanding of the world was false. So related to the concept of false consciousness in Marxist theory, is the um, another concept of his of commodity fetishism, and what Marx was saying was that commodities, you know, as, as and this is a sort of rough quote from Marx, but he says, you know, when we first look at a commodity, it just seems like any other thing, but actually, when we think about it, now Marx is something like it's full of, you know, theological niceties and complexities, something like that. Um, but why is that? Well, it's because of the way that on one hand, you know, capitalism brings unprecedented abundance into the world. And, you know, if you think about Marx as a 19th century writer, 
he's he's writing at, he's a German living in 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 London, but he's writing as the Industrial Revolution is unfolding before him, and you're seeing you know the transformation of um, cities like London and Paris into these uh, metropoles, you know, with the unprecedented amounts of people being brought into the cities, you know, the people from what would have been, you know, the um, the rural peasantry are brought in to become the new urban proletariat. Mm-hmm. And you've been, you know, international trade and a, an unprecedented scale, the sheer productive power of, uh, of uh, the Industrial Revolution, which Marx was impressed by. I mean, this is something that people forget. Marx didn't think that the Industrial Revolution was necessarily bad. He just felt that it was in the hands of the, the wrong people. Right. You know, so much so that, you know, in the, the Communist Manifesto, Marx and, and Engels speculate that, you know, as they say, that the industrialists, the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, as they called them, have created their own grave diggers. Now, why? <laughs> because... Capitalism is so fundamentally um, exploitative and inequitous that what that is done, they say in the Communist Manifesto, is is you know lay bare all the kind of deceptions of history. Because of course, as everybody knows from um, the, the Communist Manifesto, the history of of all society is the history of class struggle, which is what you know the, they say in, in the Communist Manifesto. So now there's no kind of like religion to to um, distract you. There's no kind of you know sort of feudal or filial thing to distract you. It's just sheer naked exploitation. And again, to quote from the Communist Manifesto, they say all that is solid is melted into air, and they see that as a revolutionary moment. Of course, it doesn't happen. You know, you have the the Soviet Revolution. You have you have failed revolutions around the world. One of the reasons it doesn't happen is because of the stuff that is produced under capitalism, all these wonderful things that, you know, if you read contemporary writing about, you know, from the 19th century about the first department stores in Paris, for example, you know, you've got people being overwhelmed by the sheer abundance of, of goods that are available. Nobody's ever seen it like that before. Like the ordinary person off the street just going into, um, going into a department store and being overwhelmed by that abundance. Emile Zola, the great uh, French novelist, wrote about that. So if Marx kind of develops his ideas into this notion of false consciousness that you know, you become so you become so sort of enchanted by capitalism and its productive power, and by the way that, that capitalism seems to be without any of the um, the kind of trappings of previous social movements that you know the previous you know kind of economic systems it seems to be purely about um this notion of human nature and what human beings want and it seems to give so much to people and of course we know capitalism does doesn't give anybody anything there's no such thing as a free lunch or free right. life <laughs> right you know yeah uh, um so you know, the false consciousness idea, again, you know, Marx is like, well, this applies to everybody under capitalism. Even the people at the, the top are kind of deceived into believing that competition is the only way a society can exist. The, you know, everybody seems to believe that um, desire for commodities is, um, you know, should supersede all other drives. Okay. Um, and of course, so the, Marx believes that the, the proletariat not only should, but will rise up and seize control of the factors of production, another kind of cliche from Marxism, 
it doesn't happen apart from you know and the Soviet Union, right? You know, and then China. But you don't get all these revolutions um, around Europe. They don't get, you know, a, a transformation of the world in a huge communist utopia. And later thinkers like Adorno, who I mentioned earlier, other members of the Frankfurt School have to deal with why that is. You know, and then they look at what the experience is of life under capitalism. And you could argue for a lot of poor people, their lives were improved under capitalism because they got wages and, you know, they had to be um, better treated by their employers because their employers became dependent upon them, which, again, Marx and Engels had predicted in the Communist Manifesto. But one of those post-Frankfurt school thinkers was Guy Debord, um, you know, who started out as an artist, became heavily politicised, heavily influenced by Marx. And in the Society of the Spectacle, which is his analysis of capitalism, it's published um, 1958, um, De Boer talks about a false consciousness of time. You know, that you're, the way that the advertising industry in the 50s was working, you know, the emphasis um, as part of the affect of capitalism was that, okay, we're going to save you time. And you would be saved time through the um, the introduction of labour-saving devices at home, so it saves you time and labour, uh, but also kind of repurpose military technology, things like microwave ovens, you know, that was military technology, it was turned into consumer goods. But also, one example that, um, that De Boer uses is powdered soup, right? You know, so that was military rations that were then made into consumer goods, you know, so you don't have to go and make soup anymore. You, you don't even need to heat it up. You just put boiling water into it, right? right. And as De Boer says, well, you know, you think you've got all this free time, but really, what are you free to do with that time? Well, you're not really free under capitalism because, um, you know, you need to work, you need to generate surplus value, you need to, um, you know, your time is actually taken up by labour, uh, the, the work that you need to do, which is why one of his phrases was, you know, never work. Then you have your leisure time, but your leisure time is quite often spent recovering from your labour or preparing to go back into your labour. But there's the kind of invention of a leisure economy in the 50s, the consumer leisure economy, which De Boer says is another form of labour, you know, where the emphasis is kind of put upon you to make use of your time away from work. Um, and rather than you being productive, what you're supposed to do is consume. Not do, just or doom scroll. Or doom scroll, <laughs> yeah. Well he says he says, you know, what what you find, and he's talked specifically about America, he says what what you find people do with this increased free time is watch more television. Yeah. And of course one of the kind of key fifties commodities, you know, is what you know, identifiable with the 50s, representative of the 50s, was the TV dinner. You know, the it's pre-prepared. You just have to put it in your oven, your new kind of self-cleaning oven. It's part of that kind of idealized 50s kitchen. And you put it in, you've got your three courses there. And it's designed to, um, you know, you've got two forms of consumption that uh, united in one commodity, the consumption of food and the consumption of television. You know, you sit there and you consume TV while you're eating your largely pre-prepared meal. You know, it's all chopped up for you. It's kind of, in, in the UK, they're called ready meals. You know, the, you get them from supermarkets and 
they're different from TV dinners. You know, the things you mentioned just cooking the microwave, right? And you know that sort of thing. Or there's a quite posh chain of supermarkets in the UK called Marks and Spencers, which does a kind of, and for you know a long time has done um, kind of kind of posh gourmet versions of those things, right? So this is the kind of false consciousness idea that that I think is sort of Gnostic adjacent, if you want to call it that, you know, <laughs> um, it's um, in The Invisibles, Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, there was one issue in the second volume where you've got The Invisibles kind of standing looking startled and the speech balloons are overlaid with um, kind of typewriter font, you know, like the courier font. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ragged Robin says, what's my revolutionary agenda, boss? And King Mob says, consume. You know, and that was a reference to the situationists, to their idea of um, detournement, which in French means to ambush. So they, they, as artists, you know, said that they would never produce an, anything original because novelty was what drove capitalism. So instead, they would just make collages or they would transform existing um, artworks or you know, existing uh, advertising and so on, that kind of thing, they would subvert it. A kind of diluted modern version of that approach is what you see in Banksy. You know, the artist Banksy, the kind of grill, grill, grill artist Banksy. Um, particularly like one of his uh, images, which I think is called Napalm. It's got that, the there's a, a kind of collage, it's got the image, and the famous image from the Vietnam War is the young girl who's been scalded by Napalm. And she's been led away by her wrists by, on one hand, one side it's Ronald McDonald and the other side it's Mickey Mouse, right? You know, so it's <laughs> a not very subtle commentary on capitalism. Um, but, you know, the, the situation is also, as I said, you know, the opposed work. The idea was you would never work. And they saw capitalism as a kind of waking dream. As Guy Debord put it, it's the, under capitalism, it's a topsy-turvy world a moment of the true is a moment of the false. Okay, so they tried to escape from that through what they called the dérive, to drift in French. So they would walk around the city late at night for days on end. Um, they would sometimes take drugs, or sometimes they would just not deliberately not sleep, as they would try and enter into this kind of uh, sort of mystical state. You know that. Um, the kind of hallucinatory state that would come with sleep deprivation or drug use. Some of them got interested in the occult, you know, that kind of idea of, you know, a kind of sort of um, rules-based occultist approach that you would follow numbers that you would see on street signs or so on. Um, the the novel New York Trilogy has got an element of drift, of derive in it as the narrator wanders around the city and, try, and gradually becomes another person. So they would do that and they would try and kind of discover, they, they believed that work was evil in the way that some Gnostics did. And they believed that what experience should be, what life should be characterised as by a constant state of play. You know, that they were influenced by surrealists, you know, the Dadaists as well, um, and the idea of a kind of, you know, sort of endless childhood. Um, so they tried to experience that as well, to try and discover a new kind of experience of time that was different from the false consciousness of capitalism, which, of course, regulated by work, but also by leisure, which, as I said, they saw as another form of labour. 
you know, that you were being constantly kind of programmed to consume. You've been constantly stimulated by the media, which was, of course, the engine of capitalism. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. For all subs, get ready for another 40 minutes plus of high-octane gnosis. David will continue taking us to some amazing places and providing insights galore. So much more on comic books, Gnostic television, radical philosophy, cultural deconstruction, and technosis. For the full simulation, please become a Patreon, AB Prime member, or Red Circle sub. Your support is the only thing keeping the lights of the Pleroma on. And I can't do it without you. Alright, for subs, let us to the second half of David's fantastic interview. This is what you get. <laughs> 